Welcome to CatsCast, a bi-weekly podcast delivering interviews, arts, culture, and history from New York's Catskill Mountains. This week, the first in a new series called Catskill Historical Views, an audio companion to Catskill Tri-County Historical Views, published by the Gilboa Museum and Juried History Center. This is Episode 1, John Davenport Clark, Farmer, Forester, Congressman, an interview with Bill Burns, who wrote about John D. Clark in Volume 1, Issue 2 of Catskill Tri-County Historical Views. You can find a copy at catskilltricounty.org. Davenport called Delaware County home, and so does Bill Burns. Well, my name is Bill Burns. I have lived in Delaware County for 49 years. Next year will be my 50th anniversary as a Delaware County guy. I've always been active in uh, politics in Delaware County. In fact, I could point out that there have only been um, three successful countywide Democratic candidacies in Delaware County in the last, well, since 1933, and I managed two of them. I've always been attracted to political campaigns, and that, I think, is what attracted me to John D. Clark, who uh, was a progressive Republican uh, back in the uh, early part of the 20th century, and really a remarkable guy. You say that Clark is Hobart's greatest son. Give us a sense of um, who he is, where he came from, his father being a sheriff and a Civil War hero. What's interesting about um, John D. Clark as Hobart's uh, favorite son is the people of Hobart uh, don't remember him. When I uh, started my research on the article, I went to Hobart and walked up and down the street and spoke to various people in bookshops because Hobart is the book village of the Catskills, and they'd never heard of John D. Clark. But uh, John Lamport, who is one of the the few farmers remaining in uh, Hobart, he didn't know John D. Clark specifically, but he knew the family. The Clark family came to Delaware County in the 18th century. Most of us are familiar with the Hardenburg patent, the huge million-acre land grant that was given by Queen Anne to a consortium of about eight or nine guys, took the name of one of them, Johannes Hardenburg. And that pretty much covered most of the Catskills, but not all. And there was uh, something called the Brat patent, B-R-A-D-T, which was granted to uh, Philip Livingston, the Livingstons are all over the Catskills and the Hudson Valley, and uh, also to the Clark family. Now, my guess is that uh, maybe the Clark family were the people who were actually going to come and settle the land and try to develop it, and uh, Philip Livingston was probably the money behind the land. Most of us are aware, many people are aware anyway, of the fact that so much of the Catskills was rented land for uh, a great deal of time until the 1840s. So the Brat patent included uh, the Clark family. Uh, it was about, a, I think, about a 40,000-acre patent of land. And uh, William Clark, who was John D. Clark's father, and he actually went to Kansas with John Brown and uh, fought in what's known as Bleeding Kansas. Folks may remember that from their high school uh, history studies, where there was a terrible clash pre-Civil War between uh, those people who uh, wanted Kansas to be a free state without slavery 
And those people, many of whom were coming over the borders from Missouri, which was a slave state, uh, who were hoping uh, to make it into a slave state and ended up in a, in a really bloody mess. And John Brown, who, of course, became famous later for the Harper's Ferry raid, uh, one of the things that really helped bring on the Civil War and heat up the tension between uh, the slaveholders and those who believed in freedom. So when the Republican Party was founded in 1854, it was founded with a uh, coalition of uh, Whigs, who were largely uh, folks who were interested in commercial activity uh, as opposed to land-based activity, and abolitionists, as well as people who had various uh, views on what to do about the slave question. And William Clark was right there. You know, his bona fides as an anti-slavery man were pretty strong. He survived bleeding Kansas. Not everybody did. Came back to Delaware County and was elected sheriff of uh, the county. So when John D. Clark was born, he was born to a, a fairly prominent family a, a, and certainly a very Republican family. And people have to remember that in the um, time of John D. Clark's uh, birth, the Republican Party was what we would term the progressive party today. And the, uh, the Democratic Party, which was the party of the South, was seen as the party of, uh, of slavery. Both Northerners who uh, uh, sympathized for some reason with uh, Southern uh, slaveholders and uh, the Southerners. So he was in the right place in terms of where I think most of us today would want to see somebody at that time. So then John Davenport Clark, his son, he went to the local schools. Yeah, think about, you know, he went to the common school, uh, which was common. <laughs> the common schools were um, the one-room schoolhouse that we think of today. They were uh, throughout the state of New York. And in Delaware County, there were many, many, many common schools because they covered an area that allowed people to walk to school. Both he and his sister, Eleanor, were uh, outstanding students in the uh, common school. And then Hobart didn't have a high school at that time. It's interesting that the Hobart school is today in Hobart. It's the civic building. And people are justly proud of their high school, which closed, I think, 1973, something like that, when a merger occurred with the uh, South Courtright School. But th that hadn't been thought of in John D. Clark's day. And so the place to go to school was like 20 miles down the river, down the road, Route 10 today, to Delaware Academy. Delaware Academy, I believe, is the second oldest school in uh, Delaware County, with Franklin Literary Institute being the first. And there at Delaware Academy, John Davenport Clark was a star. I mean, just think about that boy or girl today who, uh, you know, plays the sports and, and is in the band and uh, gets straight A's. That was John D. Clark. He was... Uh, kind of um, the all-around outstanding uh, student at Delaware Academy and was a very good baseball player as well. He ran the 440 and 52 seconds, which, I, you know, is pretty respectable even today. Um, so this was a great athlete, a great student, and really somebody that, um, you know, kind of think of the all-American boy, somebody who other people were very much drawn to. Did he go to college? He did. He went to uh, Lafayette, which... Um, is a very good school uh, today. Uh, Lafayette continues in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And uh, at Lafayette College, he, again, excelled in sports. He was an outstanding pitcher at Delaware Academy. And at, at Lafayette, he was an outstanding track star. He was an outstanding student. And uh, when he graduated in 
something like 1896, somewhere around there, I believe. He um, won the graduation award as the outstanding athlete in uh, in the school. And then he goes on to work at U.S. Steel. Well, before that, actually, he went out to the Colorado School of Mines. Today, you know, many of our of our listeners remember the battles over fracking locally here in the Catskills. You know, we have come to the point where we realize that uh, some of the extraction that we've done in the earth has had some serious environmental problems. But in the late 1800s, early 1900s, mining and mining engineering was sort of the cutting edge of certainly of engineering education. So he went to the Colorado School of Mines in order to study mining engineering. Interestingly enough, Herbert Hoover was a mining engineer and made his original reputation that way. So it was really a hot field. It would be kind of being a a digital engineer today, perhaps. He had one more year of eligibility if they were counting eligibility in those days. And therefore, he was able to pitch for the Colorado uh, School of Mines as well. So he continued his athletics in graduate school. And then in 1901, he uh, got a job with J.P. Morgan. And what Morgan did was he um, had already purchased a number of steel companies, but the major steel producer in America and in the world was Carnegie Steel, Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie, of course, is responsible for many of the libraries around our Catskills, gave money to build libraries. Carnegie was not particularly interested in selling, I don't believe. So J.P. Morgan asked him what price he would want for uh, Carnegie Steel. The story is that Carnegie wrote a very large figure, wouldn't be particularly large for a corporation today, but very large for 1901, figuring this guy's never going to give me this kind of money. And J.P. Morgan did. He founded U.S. Steel, which at that time was the biggest uh, corporation in the world. And John D. Clark, he got a job with the U.S. Steel and rose to the position of director of mines. The thing that made U.S. Steel such an important company was the same thing that made the Rockefeller Standard Oil important. It was vertically integrated. So right from the mining of the coal, the creation of coke, the mining of ores, they did everything from the very beginning of the process before they ended up with manufactured steel. And so being the director of mines was a big job. And he probably made a lot of money. It seems like a plush job, uh, but then he decided, for some reason, to go to law school. Yeah, yeah. I think 1908, he'd been with uh, U.S. Steel for seven years by that point. He had risen to a a pretty prominent position, as I mentioned, in the company, and yet he decided to go to law school. Now, he may have been well been going to law school at night. It was uh, Brooklyn Law, and he did get his law degree sometime around 1911, and he did go into the practice of law at that point. I think he had his eye on a a political career early. It was not traditional necessarily for people to come out of the corporations. U.S. Steel being so big might not have been so popular and probably put him in a better position as an attorney. But he ended up uh, practicing law in New York City in a firm that he and a partner had established. And then like other notable Catskill kids like John Burroughs, he comes back up here, buys a Delaware County farm where he practices sustainable agriculture. Yeah, not only did he buy a Delaware County farm, he sort of bought the Delaware County farm. Arbor Hill, today it's on Arbor Hill Road. At that time, there was a long bridge that went across the west branch of the Delaware out to what we call today Route 10. It was a farm, so he had several hundred acres. And it was a place where political leaders from Delaware County had lived at Arbor Hill. So it's pretty clear to me that when he bought Arbor Hill, 
he had a political career in mind. But you're right, his goal at Arbor Hill was what we call today sustainable agriculture. He established a model farm. This was a place that it was expected that other farmers would be able to, to observe the way his farm was run as a way to improve agriculture throughout the county. And he also got very interested in forestry. Another thing that was huge in the early part of the 20th century that we don't think about as much today, most of the forests had been cut down in Delaware County, certainly for farming, but in Ulster County, a lot of it was for timber. So reforestation was uh, the major environmental issue. Did he see a relationship between uh, the importance of forests and farms? I think he did. I think he saw forestry as another resource for the farmer, for the country. The whole forestry movement was based upon the wise use of the forest. In 1882, the Catskills Forest had been declared forever wild, and we're certainly glad of that. We have all these wonderful hiking trails and forests here. But his brand of forestry was to manage a forest so that the wood, both for lumber and timber and for fuel, could be used and then, but used in a way that that remains sustainable. And he called himself, he said, I'm John D. Clark, a farmer and a forester. And a congressman, which came next. Which came next. And that came in 1920. He um, threw his hat in the ring for um, the United States Congress. In uh, that time, in the 1920s, uh, congressional districts were built around county lines. So um, the district was Delaware County, Otsego County, up where Oneonta is, Shenango County, that's where Norwich is, and Broome County, where Binghamton is. One of the things that really fascinated me about John D. Clark, he's, in a way, the last Delaware County guy to represent us in Congress. Since I've lived in Delaware County, I've been represented by Howard W. Robeson in, uh, in Binghamton, by uh, uh, Matt McHugh from uh, Ithaca, Sherwood Bowlert from Utica, Antonio Delgado from Rhinebeck. You know, it's always people who are from outside of our county. So he's, he's really the last major national political figure who uh, was a Delaware County guy. So he was elected in 1920, again in 1922. Yeah. And then in 1924, the forestry interest comes back in in a political way when he introduces the Clark-McNary Act, and that allocates public money for reforestation of private lands. What was that all about? Well, imagine again that we live in a world in which the major environmental issue is reforestation. There are many people, particularly progressive uh, Republicans, and I would say progressive Democrats, who were pushing for the federal government to take action, just like people push for the federal government to take action today on the major environmental issue, which I would say is climate change. But the federal government didn't see that constitutionally there was a way to do that. Well, before John D. Clark got to Congress, the Weeks Act passed in 1911, and the Weeks Act allowed for the reforestation of river drainage areas, the valleys of rivers, in order to improve navigation. So what they were doing was they were, they really wanted to do some reforestation, but they, the Constitution doesn't allow for that, but the Constitution allows for the uh, federal government to be involved in interstate commerce, Navigation of rivers is interstate commerce, so that was the point. It didn't really do the job. So in 1924, Clark 
introduced into the House, John D. Clark did, and uh, Senator McNary from Oregon in the Senate, a bill that would set up a public-private partnership in which, for the first time, the federal government could go on private land, and most of the deforested land was private land, large tracts that had been deforested by the timber companies. So this allowed the federal government to go into private land in a public-private partnership, and today we see public-private partnerships as uh, a regular thing and a boon to, uh, to the country to get things done. But at that time, it was fairly rare that allowed for the federal government to establish a reforestation program. And it was there that the nurseries were established, that the free distribution of tree seedlings really got underway. So those who, uh, you know, who value the forest here in the Catskills and elsewhere, and there are so many of us, we really owe a debt of gratitude to uh, Congressman Clark and Senator McNary. Is that act still on the books? It is. The, the, the Clark-McNary Act is still uh, the law of the land and memorializes his name, certainly. And then... Shoes and alcohol seem to have undid him in a way leading up to the next election, 1924. 1924, John D. Clark is uh, challenged in a primary. And uh, his uh, Mr. Tolley, Harold Tolley, who uh, went on to become the mayor of Binghamton, but I don't think he was at that point, runs against him. The big issue is Binghamton is a shoe town and Broome County is a shoe county. So Johnson City is, is um, it's a factory town like Chichester was years ago. But it's a factory town with like 40,000 workers and uh, several other, Endicott Shoe, several other uh, shoe companies there. Well, in the post-World War I world, imports began to pour into the country, Italian shoes, shoes from other European countries, and it really put a dent in the American shoe industry. And uh, Tali ran on defending the shoe industry. The other issue was temperance, particularly in Delaware County. And I remember uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union having a table at the Delaware County Fair every year. The uh, Women's Christian Temperance Union and other temperance organizations, the Anti-Saloon League, which, by the way, John uh, Burroughs was a dues-paying member year in and year out. These organizations were fighting against what they saw as the scourge of alcohol. And that was really much a, a women's issue. What many people saw was that uh, men would uh, get their paycheck and drink it up before they got home to buy milk and uh, eggs and bacon. And um, Clark wasn't strong on that issue to the thinking of of the Women's Temperance Christian Union. But he ended up losing by, I think it was 242 votes in a very close squeaker primary. That hurt. And he came back two years later. And was he a bit hypocritical in terms of alcohol, supporting the temperance movement in some ways, but also being a drinker himself? Exactly. John D. Clark was known, as a number of politicians were, as one who voted dry but drank wet. I think really people began to say that about him after the 26, when he when he ran against Tolley in the primary and beat him and became the Republican candidate and won his seat back. Because I'm not sure that he spent much time on the temperance issue you know, before that, but he, he was very careful to vote dry after the loss, although he did drink wet. John D. Clark became a real expert in the shoe tariff business. 
paid a lot of attention to the uh, to the shoe trade, as well as to the dairy farmer. It was a district that was built on milk and leather, milk and shoes. And so he was re-elected in 28 and re-elected in 30 and re-elected in the uh, landslide of uh, Franklin Roosevelt in, in 1932. Election day rolls around in 1933. Election day is going to be two days later. And Clark gets in his automobile and leaves uh, Arbor Hill and drives down into Delhi. Arbor Hill is in Frazier's, a stone's throw from Delhi uh, today. It's where the, the big milk plant is today in uh, Clark Industries. And he drives home, and as he's coming up, up the rise, just before you get to the Clark Industries establishment on the right-hand side of the road, and another car with a family in it is coming the other way, and they sideswipe. And that throws Clark's car off course, he goes across the road, and there's a guardrail there, but there's a gap in the guardrail, and he just happens to hit that gap in the guardrail, and it's a 30-foot drop down there. And today it's all forested, but if you get out of your car and you look, you can see that's a drop down there. People stopped, they went down to him, and he ended up dying in the arms of a stranger. It was really a tragic, tragic death. He was 60 years old. He had a uh, really a remarkable career. He was, he was a joiner. He was member of every organization. You know, backslapper. I mean, a, a, a hail fellow, well met kind of guy, and everybody uh, liked him. I think the funeral was the next Wednesday, the day after election day. It was held in Delhi at uh, what I think now is the Union Church up there, and uh, 1,500 people packed the funeral. Then his wife Marion fills out the remainder of his term. Was there a special election, or did she just step up and say, I'm going to fill the term? No, there's always a special election for the um, Congress. A governor, if, for example, if a senator uh, leaves office for any reason, the governor of that state can appoint uh, somebody to fill out his term. But the, the House of Representatives is the people's house, and only elected representatives are allowed to be there. The Republican county chairs got together from Shenango, Broome, Delaware, and uh, Otsego counties, and they chose Marion Williams Clark, who was John D. Clark's wife. He had met her at the Colorado School of Mines. She was about five years younger than he, so she would have been about 55 years old when she received the nomination to run in a special election, which would have been held probably in February or March of 1934, and filled out the remainder of his term, chose not to run for re-election in the November 1934 race. Since 1934, there has not been a single person from Delaware County uh, representing uh, the people of a congressional district, including Delaware County, in the Congress. So John D. and Marion uh, were the last. And John D. Clark left one other legacy, which is a camp. He certainly did. You know, my my two sons and, and uh, my stepson, they all attended uh, Camp Shankatunk. I think particularly many of our Delaware County listeners are, either went to Camp Shankatunk or had their children attend that camp. Camp Shankatunk is a 4-H camp very affordable, and that was created by John Davenport Clark, who split up 
his uh, model farm and, and model forest by taking his swimming pool and uh, several hundred acres in forest and fields and turning it over to the 4-H to create this camp. So it's a real legacy that he's left for, particularly for the people of Delaware County, but I think for, for everybody in the Catskills. Anything else that uh, struck you about your research into John D. Clark? I would just like to point out that, you know, what an a impressive historical figure he was, a Roosevelt Republican, a Teddy Roosevelt Republican, somebody who was really on the cutting edge of the environmental movement. Although the issues that faced the conservation movement, as they called it then, were different than the issues it faces now. I believe that if John D. Clark were alive now, he'd be in the forefront of trying to solve some of the environmental concerns that we have today. And also somebody who was very much of his constituency, of the community, in a way that, um, you know, I think we all see as valuable. What originally alerted you to this figure, to know enough to even research him and write about him? I'd heard of him and really, you know, knew um, nothing about him except that, you know, we had this congressman who died in a really nasty car crash. When the Tri-County Historical Review was established, you know, the question came up, what would I want to write? You know, I was kind of immersed in John Burroughs at that point, and I'm kind of fascinated with these uh, local guys who rise to uh, a national reputation and yet remain local. That's one of the things I love about John Burroughs, the naturalist and, and essay writer, is that he became one of the most important writers in America, really. I'm just fascinated by people who are country people, who are Catskill Mountain people, who are Delaware County people, who are not urbane, but yet are able to become major uh, figures in, in the larger world. And the research was great because his papers are at the New York State Historical Society, now the Fenimore Museum, in Cooperstown. And so I was able to go up there and, and spend days, and the librarians would wheel out a cart with five or six boxes, and you open up those boxes, and it's like you're entering John D. Clark's world because he saved everything. Uh, he also subscribed to a clipping service, which today is unnecessary because of the internet, but the clipping service was you would hire a company and they would scour the newspapers and every time your name was mentioned in an article, they would clip it out. And then his wife, I believe it was Marion, who would then paste those clippings into scrapbooks. So in, um, in Cooperstown, there are 19 boxes of scrapbooks and all this ephemera, all this stuff that uh, really gives one the opportunity to know this guy and to know what he was like. And that was, that was fascinating. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you, Brett. I appreciate it. Our thanks to Bill Burns, Catskill Mountain educator, author, and thinker. Bill was named by the Catskill Center as one of the 50 stewards of the Catskills. Catskill Historical Views is an audio companion to Catskill Tri-County Historical Views, published by the Gilboa Museum and Juried History Center. Subscribe for home delivery at CatskillTriCounty.org. This series is also supported by the Zadok Pratt Museum in Prattsville, New York, 
and online at zadokpratmuseum.org. Piano Reg, thanks to Tony Corretto. Thanks to Humanities New York for their financial support. Next time on Cat's Cast, The Nutcracker, Orpheum Dance Program, and an online performance this year. Reserve your spot now at the Catskill Mountain Foundation. That's catskillmtn.org. Join us for the backstory in two weeks, right here on Cat's Cast. I'm Brett Barry. Thanks for listening. <laughs>